Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I would think that over here it seems pretty fair. Like, I don't see any gender discrimination so far, at least. Yeah, I feel the same, but I know that, like, you've got a female prime minister. So obviously that's a good sign for gender equality. And she's just had a baby. That's obviously a good sign. We've all been socialised to kind of accept the legitimacy and authority of men quite early on to be agreeable or to be pleasing and to sit back or to be the listeners rather than the talkers. I'm Sonia Sly and this is Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand and looking over our shoulders to the lives of those women who led the first charge. But how much has really changed? And are we where we're meant to be? To draw on a quote from our very own suffragist, Kate Shepherd, how many of the things that separate us and that deny women true equality have been overcome? Over eight episodes, we'll unwrap themes and issues around education, women in the workplace and the limitations that continue to shape women's careers and opportunities, the way cultural diversity and identity influence behaviour and attitudes around gender, but also issues like sexual violence, the constraints from past to present around women's access to public space, including toilets, to examining how the female body has been sexualised under the male gaze, asking where the balance of power lies today and what needs to change. But first, we're exploring the lives of rural women then and now. Why? Well, two reasons. The first is that a lot of New Zealand at the time that the petition was signed was largely rural, and the second is that we've found a descendant of the very first woman who signed the petition, the name that's right at the top of page one. Let's take a look at where it all started. Marianne Muir, Selena Bevan, Clara Alley, Elizabeth Best Taylor, Louisa Eleanor Priscilla, Ernestine Cole, Winifred, Annie Langrish, Sarah McPhee, Mary Jane McLean, Kate Mary Ogston, Rhoda Flora Orga, Alan Peacock, Magdalena Stewart Reed, Catherine Wilson Sheppard, Mary Helen Wilson, Sarah Jane Yandel, Sybil E. B.A. The petition is 270 metres in length and comprises of more than 500 sheets. 546 to be exact, and despite some parts of the petition having been lost or damaged, the surviving version contains at least... Coming up on 25,000 women on our segment of the petition that we hold here. And 20 of those were actually men. Given that some of the petition didn't survive, the actual number would have been closer to 30,000 signatures, which made it the largest petition New Zealand had ever seen. I'm in Wellington, heading to the National Library, where I'm really excited because I'm going to get a chance to see the actual petition. You know, most people in their family have got someone that they, they know who signed the petition. This is Stephanie Lash from Archives New Zealand. So a lot of people, you know, they have their one ancestor that they think of and... Do you think the they other, take it for granted as well? Possibly, yes, and the other 25,000 women may not um, enter into their minds. Equally, there are lots of women on there who are yet to be discovered. People come in and go, I wonder if my great-grandmother was the right age at the time signed a petition and they'll look on the database and be really surprised and chuffed when they find that, yes, she did, and maybe two of their great-grandmothers did or similar. Where is it? <laughs> yep, I know. Such urgency. Take me to the petition. 
it's, it's, it's alongside the treaty. So this is the document room, the whare taonga, where we keep he whakaputanga and te tiriti. The Declaration of Independence and the Treaty of Waitangi. And the suffrage petition. And it's really dark in here, so you can't actually see anything. So when you come in, you can push this button on the case here to light up the petition. It will stay lit for a few minutes. You can look at it, and if the lights go up, just push the button again. In all its glory, the petition sits in a custom-built light-controlled display case. The light is set to low to protect the inks from fading and damage. I'm amazed to be standing in front of it, to be honest. These signatures of women who are no longer with us, the proof of their existence made by their marks on these pieces of paper, which have stood the test of time. Um, the inks on the document are quite sensitive, and for all three of the documents, they've got special conservation needs. And this is where I feel that black and white photos dull or kind of diminish our idea of the past. They don't give us any indication of the reality and aliveness, if that's a word, of the life that they were living. Because there are signatures not only in black ink, but there's red and green and blue. It makes me think of those multicoloured bullet pens that look like spaceships. Well, they didn't have those back then, of course, but you know what I mean. Pretty much every conceivable colour of ink, brown ink and black ink, there are lots of the ordinary blue and black inks, but lots and lots of purple inks, red and pink, a little bit of green. We have to look after the red inks very carefully because they are susceptible to light fading, which is one of the reasons why, in this case, we're able to roll the petition backwards and forwards to change the pages that are on display. Oh. You can see a few purple signatures um, dotted around on these sheets here and... Once these sheets have been on display for a couple of months, we'll roll it on so that people can see the next lot of signatures. The sheets on the roll have been arranged by location from Northland, Thames, Taranaki, Whanganui, Manawatu, Hawke's Bay. You get the picture. At the moment we've got some signatures on display from Wellington and down here we've got some from Ashburton, Willoughby and uh, Whakanui, places around Canterbury. And it's cool when people come in and look at these sheets and go, oh, that's cool, that's where I live. It's nice to see all the cursive writing as well. And so all these inks, you know, if there are ink blots, it's because people are writing with dip pens or blotchy fountain pens. And so there are a couple of sheets that um, obviously were in the wars a little bit before they were sent to Cape Shepherd, but they all were gathered up and all glued together anyway, no matter what condition they were in. So most sheets are in a really good condition. But back then, not everyone could read or write. So how did illiterate women sign the petition? Or were they just left out of the mix? They usually just signed with an X, a shaky X on the petition because they uh, weren't used to writing their own names or signing with a signature. Then next to it, the woman who was gathering the uh, signatures for the petition would write that, um, you know, the woman's name and write that it was her mark. There are about 500 of those that have signed with an X and about another 500 where the signatures are plainly so shaky that they are most likely by women not used to holding a pen, not used to signing their names. Now, the weird thing about the sheets of paper is the formatting, and I couldn't help but notice how haphazard it actually is. Now, there are blank spaces on sides of some of the pages and addresses that are bunched together with each signatory squeezing in their details into a limited space on the page. It's actually quite telling, though, of how the sheets got around the country in the first place. The person who signs first on the sheet tends to sort of set the format for the rest of the sheet. And so whereas on the second sheet down here you can see that on the left-hand column the women have signed their names, on the right-hand column they've written where they're from. Uh, some of those sheets, it'll be a full street address, 110 Vivian Street, Wellington. Human beings. So unpredictable. But such conformists. Sometimes it'll just be a, you know, a suburb or a... a town like Martinborough on the sheet above so that column there on the right is meant to be for your address and that takes a lot of different forms over the petition which is really interesting. And the sheets are also indicative of kind of changes in geography. You see things like old spellings for towns that have changed. You see where uh, there's been a concentration of people in, in cities. Um, in Christchurch, for example, there are a lot of street addresses in the central city that are now replaced with commercial buildings. And you can, you can see that, you know, in that time, that section of Colombo Street, for instance, in the central city was, you know, a, a residential area. And so it's interesting to look at the, the geographical spread of signatures and imagine what those places were like back then and know what they're like now. Just to clarify, this is the third attempt to get a suffrage petition over the line. The first and second were sent through to Parliament in 1891 and 92 respectively, 
But Kate Shepherd and her volunteers weren't prepared to sit back and take no for an answer. Lucky for us. Kate Shepard was the organiser of the petition and she had a friend who was a printer and she had him print out the sheets and you can see they're quite long, they're about 60 centimetres long each and they're quite narrow as well. But they've got a column for uh, one signature and then a column for the address and so these were sent out all over the country for women to gather signatures and as soon as the 1892 suffrage petition had done its job of supporting the bill that went through Parliament that didn't make it all the way to getting the legislation passed for women to get the vote. Kate Shepard and her colleagues in the Women's Christian Temperance Union knew that they needed to act really fast if they wanted to um, you know, keep up the momentum. They were determined, and that's because... 1893 was an election year, and so they knew that if they didn't get the, the legislation over the line that year, there'd be at least three more years to wait. Each sheet has the prayer at the top to the Honourable Speaker and the members of the House of Representatives. The petition of the undersigned women of the age of... 21 years and upwards, resident in the colony of New Zealand, humbly shooting. So they sprang into action in mid-1892, got these sheets printed. She sent these out all over the country in time for the summer holidays so that women could take them to the places where they holidayed so that they'd be even better reached not only to the cities and the towns of New Zealand but out to the rural places and the beaches where we go on our summer holidays. Come rain or shine. The document is over a century old, but considering its history, it's not in bad shape. So the main damage it's suffered is pretty minor and it's just from being rolled and unrolled. There's lots of ink blots and I think those are really interesting and that sort of speaks to the chaos of its creation because these sheets were carried all around the place and people gathered signatures by knocking on doors, by collecting signatures out in public. And after all the signatures were gathered, they were mailed back to Kate Shepherd in Christchurch at her home in Rickerton and she and her colleagues there glued all of the sheets together and wound them around a segment of a broom handle and made this big roll, which is the roll that you see now. There are thousands of names on the petition, but one sits right at the top. The very first name is Mary Jane Carpenter. I took a trip down to Christchurch to meet up with her great-grandson, Peter Aitken, and his wife, Margaret. So her headstone is... which one? Oh, no! It's completely toppled to the ground which also happened to her husband's headstone too as a result of the Christchurch earthquake. That's my grandfather and Mary Jane Carpenter. Now, the headstones would otherwise have been in pristine condition, so it's a little heartbreaking. There was initially the, the stone was put up for George Frederick and, and later had Mary Jane's inscription. How old was Mary when he married her? 21. Or 22. She came out in 1870 and on the ship's record she's listed as a domestic servant. Was she educated? What was her kind of trajectory? As a general servant she would not have been well educated. She might have been able to read and write. I mean, do you think that they ended up getting married because they were kind of in the same area? Or? Probably. But I think single women in the 1870s coming out to a male-dominated colonial society were snapped up fairly quickly. You've seen pictures of her, have yes, you? Yes, Would you say she was an attractive woman? No. Like, no? <laughs> <laughs> she, we, we could turn off the, the oh, no, recordings of this. No, that's hilarious. <laughs> but she is rather butch-looking. Really? And this is Peter's wife, Margaret. She looks manly. Her face is not attractive. Well, her features may have been decimated by having seven children and the photograph we have has got seven kids with it. We don't know, she may have been uh, rather sylph-like and uh, very attractive in her younger days. Now I'll just mention here that I also asked Peter what Mary Jane's husband looked like too. Peter tells me he was a lean man with a beard and Mary Jane was actually his second wife after his first wife passed away. His first wife was uh, Frances Chapman. She died very early. He clearly wasn't wasting any time and snapped Mary Jane up quick smart. It turns out that she'd come to New Zealand with two brothers and a sister and her dad, a blacksmith. Her father, who was 50 at the time, which I thought was a bold venture, they lived out at Yuldhurst initially and then moved to Rickerton. 
the father was a blacksmith, is that right? Yes, or boiler maker, or mechanic. He's a person who did repairs with ironwork. Mary Jane Carpenter and her husband, George Frederick, were farming folk. This area here is a lot of it is shingle. It's not all that good for farming. This area is probably all right, but a lot of it is on shingle fans and it's very prone to drought. So they would have also experienced that themselves? Yes, 260 acres they had, but I would imagine they cropped and had sheep. Once she got married, they worked on the farm, and yes. I mean, surely she's like this robust, sort of strong woman who... Formidable, that's, that's how I would describe her. And she must have been, because to be proactive on women's rights or seeking uh, women's vote, and also being a staunch... Uh, Methodist and advocate for temperance. You had to have a fair bit of guts to be able to uh, stand up and, and pose those sorts of uh, propositions. So, How was it, do you think, that she ended up as being first on the actual role? There was a group of people. I mean, Kate Shepherd lived in Rickerton, and there was a, a sort of, dare I say it, a coven. <laughs> <laughs> now, Peter... Let's try that one again. There was a group of women who were all first signed up and they came from Yaldhurst, Rickerton, Hornby. So they're in this area. Oh, right. So it's she would have had like that direct kind of contact with her. Yes, mm. yeah. She would have known Kate Shepherd quite well. Peter remembers coming to the cemetery as a child accompanying his mother. Today, the site is beautifully kempt with rows of smaller, more modern headstones alongside some of the older ones with the occasional headstone toppled and cracked. It's rather intimate and not too overcrowded. Back then, though, the site was completely overgrown. As kids, the thing that we enjoyed about coming over out here was that we could have fights with acorns. Oh, really? <laughs> well, because there were like lots of yeah, acorn trees. Yeah. These are all oaks. My great-grandfather's farm was Oak Farm. And that's why I suspect he's just over here, just down this road. And we're going to go and try yes, and knock yeah. on the door, aren't we? Yes. I, I think they'll be surprised. If anyone is home, they'll be mm. like, uh, OK. Yeah. Right, OK. So, um, so and yes, we did head over to the original house where Peter's great-grandmother once lived. And it was a bit of an adventure, let's just say. But we'll come back to that later. Most of the people who are in the Yaldhurst area all signed up. It's clear from the uh, petition that it's Yaldhurst, Yaldhurst, Rickerton. Did her children, they ended up being educated? And Yes. The younger son, William, took over the farm. He had a job in Christchurch for a while and the family, his family, are, are sort of spread out through Christchurch. Oh, look at the, the inscription. So this one says on... Her daughters, Ethel Mary, says, let us talk about Jesus. And on her grandmother's one, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I mean, so they're all incredibly religious. It was the style of the time to put something like that on. I mean, who would say now to be with Christ is far better? She was a staunch Methodist. And that's an important detail because the suffrage petition was largely driven by women who were members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. I've heard it described as, you know, sort of like a nice sort of middle class hobby cause as well, where temperance was involved in a lot of social situations. And so if you were in the Methodist Church or the Anglican Church, there'd be lots of, um, you know, temperance picnics or temperance balls and things that encourage young people to have fun without getting involved in alcohol. And so the temperance cause that was the real driver behind gaining some of the uh, electoral power was also, um, you know, part of people's lives in a sort of social fabric kind of way. Contrary to how we might view religion and the importance of Christianity today, for women in New Zealand in the late 19th century, well, they were empowered by being part of a group like the WCTU. It was a place where women could congregate outside of the home, giving them a place to hang out and socialise, an outlet to speak their minds and raise concerns. Learning a little bit about the women who signed and the sort of interests and the convictions that they had across the board, there's no one real driving reason that everybody signed a petition for, but I think everybody agreed on a basic level that women being able to vote and participate in that way was essential. But let's not overlook the social problem that alcohol was causing. 
their primary directive was to seek prohibition because, you see, alcohol had become the scourge of colonial settlement. It was proving destructive to family life and the well-being of women and children. OK, give us another one. Come on, barman, give me another one. I don't care whatever you got. I don't think you can say all men were becoming alcoholic. I think that's, that's not the case. But there was a lot of alcohol and there was a lot of drinking and it was pretty unregulated. This is Dr Charlotte MacDonald, a Professor of History, Philosophy, Political Science and International Relations at Victoria University. And in places that was really problematic. It was either men drinking the week's wages, that keeping the household going, or men drinking a lot, coming home drunk and um, you know all the things that happen when that occurs. When the New Zealand settlers arrived in New Zealand, many men were single and working in isolation on farms. So a way to counteract that loneliness of frontier life was to gather with others and, as you can imagine, alcohol provided a form of comfort. Now, about a decade before the 1893 petition was signed, 1879 to be exact, New Zealand is recorded to have had at least one hotel or drinking establishment for every 287 Europeans. That's a lot of drinking going down. Keeping in mind too that Māori at the time didn't have a drinking culture before the Europeans arrived. And we'll get onto that in another episode. So it certainly was enough of a problem for women to organise to try and regulate the control of alcohol. Not all women were temperance supporters, but many were. And so what the Women's Christian Temperance Union that got set up in New Zealand in the mid-1880s was trying to do was saying, you know, we want to be able to to regulate in some way where people can buy alcohol and where they can drink it. Now, the licensing law is there, but we have no vote. We cannot in any way control or influence the political process because we don't have a vote and nor can we stand for Parliament. So that's why they set up a suffrage section of the franchise section within the Women's Christian Temperance Union that Kate Shepherd was the leader of to say, well, in order to get change to the drinking laws, we need to have the vote. So that's the order in which it came and then they started really campaigning for the vote. My mother had been canvassing with a petition round about the district and one of my brothers, aged about 12 or 14, used to drive her around in a buggy with a buggy and a horse. This is Hilda Kate Lovell-Smith. Now, her parents were good friends with Kate Shepherd. In fact, that's where Hilda's middle name comes from. Her parents were dedicated members of the WCTU, and later on in life, when her mum passed away, her father William married Kate Shepherd. They called at the farm, and my mother would ask if the lady of the house would like to sign this petition. Uh, Sometimes she had a favourable reception, more often than not, I think. While there are 25 to 30,000 women who signed this petition, there were actually plenty of women who didn't. One time, a woman slammed the door in her face and told her to go home and mind her children. Speaking of resistance, this was a sentiment shared amongst many in New Zealand society at the time, including in the House of Representatives. Mr Speaker, for the sake of the families, for the sake of the future representatives of this House, for the sake of the rising generation, I ask this House to pause before it curses the women of this community by giving them this vote. We are bringing them down to a level whereby they will lose their charms and beauty and blunting the womanly and motherly and sisterly instincts and robbing them all of the attributes which make women acceptable to men and glorious in the sight of heaven. Colonial New Zealand was a man's world and for many, the idea of women getting the vote, it's seen as a masculine and kind of unattractive pursuit. The 1892 census showed that there were close to 298,000 Pākehā women living in New Zealand at the time and just over 305,000 Māori women. 
It's also unclear how many Māori women have also signed the petition, but we'll look at that in another episode. But I do want to add here that women were proving themselves competent in some spheres of life. They were respected teachers. There were entrepreneurial women who ran their own businesses. And of course, back then, Māori women were landowners. So there was every reason they should be given the vote, right? You know, women were taxpayers, they should be therefore citizens, they should be in Parliament, they should be making policy. Dr Barbara Brooks is an historian and author of A History of New Zealand Women. Certainly the women campaigning for the vote were really driven by the idea that they should be out there doing the Lord's work. Religion actually empowered them to move outside of the home and to organise over social issues. So we might think now of it as a very conservative force, but for women at the time, actually, it was a very galvanising force Mm. and encouraged them in their quest for social change. Whereas other people might criticise them for it, they could say, well, actually, we are supposed to make a better world, and that's what our faith tells us. You're listening to RNZ Podcast Beyond Kate, where over eight episodes we'll unveil stories and issues around women's suffrage in New Zealand from past to present. According to Te Ara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, the majority of the population were living in rural areas. Towns in New Zealand were only just developing, Urbanisation became an upward trend from 1910, more than 10 years after the petition was signed. And prior to that, the majority of the population was based in the South Island. That was one of the very hard things for the suffragists, to get people together in rural areas to sign the petition. In Christchurch, for example, I think it's Rose Hall, you know, the wife of Sir John Hall is trying to collect signatures in, in rural areas and they try and gather people at community halls so that they can get them to sign. And of course, women in New Zealand were still looking to movements back home in parts of Europe and the United States, the places they had originally come from. Many of them came, you know, with groups of others who shared either, you know, Anglican in Christchurch or Presbyterian in Dunedin, had a shared faith. Some people were escaping oppression because of their particular faith as well. So I think they were uh, emboldened by their faith. The the very first branch actually started before the visit of Mary Levitt, the American envoy, and that was in Invercargill in 1884, but it doesn't seem to have come to much. Mary Greenleaf Clement Levitt was the founding member of the WCTU. She was a divorced Boston schoolteacher who became the very first round-the-world missionary for the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She travelled as far afield as Japan, Australia, India, South America and Turkey. It's really 1885 after she visits that branches are started throughout the country. Was there a WCTU in every single city in New Zealand at the time? Uh, In the main centres, I believe there was. WCTU meetings in Waimati and Omaru, so you know people from Dunedin might go up to those, but there was also local interest. You know, the fact that it's temperance shows you how much women were affected by the trade in alcohol. Women needed to have a say because their lives and well-being were at stake. It's a no-brainer that they wanted more rights, but they're also considered the property, I repeat, the property of their husbands, as are the children. Which, of course, has some negative implications for women and their families. Add alcohol into the mix, and it's like throwing a match to kerosene. I think it was dangerous to walk down the street if you're a woman at night, when there are a lot of drunken men about. You know, men might be paid daily for their labour, and then they would spend all their earnings in the pub and come home with no money. So it was a critical issue for women. To control drinking meant they would have much more control over their family life. You know, dependent on a male breadwinner, and they were dependent on that income to support their children, and alcohol also led to violence and domestic violence. If we consider that New Zealand was largely rural at the end of the 19th century, then isolation is a major reality. Fast forward to today, 
And what is it like for women in rural parts of New Zealand? Like New Zealand farmer? Yes, so my, my brother and I were fifth generation on our farm down in the, the, the Rangitiki. So pretty proud of that. So, so your forebears... This is Fiona Gower, and we're driving out to the farm where she lives and works just outside of Auckland. Fiona is the president of Rural Women New Zealand. She grew up on a farm, studied wool casting, and has worked in wool sheds and wool stores around the country. And I've heard she's pretty good at it. And while she's not sure whether any of the women in her family signed the petition, her connection to rural life comes with a rich heritage and plenty of pride. And the piece of land my brother was on, it was purchased in about 187, in the 1870s. They were the Warrings, so they came out from England back in the 1850s. My other side, the Gowers, were landed in Wellington in 1840 and shifted up country to where they are, where we are now as well. So they owned other land, but they've sold a lot of their since and moved on. So, From either side, do you know much about the, the women, the female settlers? Oh, a lot of them. My great-aunt, my father taped my great-aunt and the stories of her when she was a little girl and talking about canoeing up the Waitocha River to her relations up at Naumatapuri and my great-grandmother that lived up there and all the stories about them. A lot of it's not about the woman, of course, it's always about the men, but you know, Auntie Mary told us a lot of stories about growing up as a girl in that era. So, I mean, how hard do you think that things were for them? Incredibly hard when you look at how they had to live with the woman, you know, cooking over open fires and wearing those long dresses and trying to get everything dry in the, the conditions that they had, living in tents, living in panga waris. Some like settlers lived in a panga whare, a tree fern house. Some places were hut-like and basic, and others were fully-fledged, sturdy-looking houses. So, little, yeah, little hut. That sounds quite damp, doesn't it? Very damp, you yeah. know, whether they were in a tent or, you know, very basic shelters. So it would have been incredibly hard and, and isolated because it might have been days before you could get, you know, to travel out. Some of them never went out. They were isolated for a long time and if the men went away, they were on their own with their children. So if something went wrong, it was could go really wrong because you didn't have access to the doctor or to midwives and things for having children. So it was... Yeah, pretty, pretty scary times. So they had two children. It was my my grandmother who who had the land and um, married my grandfather, so it was her, her family farm that had gone through the generations. And it turns out that helping in the community is in Fiona's blood. My grandmother was one of the founding members of the Rural Women New Zealand Group, which is women's division those days, back down where I grew up in Martin, and they were one of the early branches. So, you know, we were pretty pretty early um, settlers for things like that when they're getting out and doing things and actually support their communities and find out those in the areas that did need support through whether they were ill or uh, needing help at home and things like that or you know with having childbirth so that's where they were really important was actually helping in times of need and we're still doing that so this is our house so this is our farm coming through here wow lots of sheep yeah lots of sheep is it now this sheep here? That's a goat. Oh, that's <laughs> it. a goat. Okay. Hey, don't hold it against me. I'm a city girl through and through, and clearly one with not very good eyesight. Okay. So it's not a bad view from very backyard, is it? Oh, wow. Now, the reason we've come out to the farm is to talk about the realities of rural life for women, because the concerns are very, very different to urban life. Lots of gumboots here, I see. <laughs> I swear, I've never seen so many pairs of gumboots in one household, ever. Like there are literally gumboots everywhere, but I guess that's what you'd expect. From but them. before we get started, I managed to tie myself up in knots and reference that old cliche. Oh, so you're so you're married to a farmer. Yeah. Yes. And what does it mean for you to be a farmer's wife? Well, we don't like to be called farmers' yeah. wives these days. Oop. <laughs> the look on your face sort of says it all, really. These days, um, it's one of those terms, I guess, that have gone by the by because we're actually it's a farming partnership these days. Fiona says colonial women would have pitched in milking cows and that kind of thing, but were more than likely to have been tied up with those domestic chores, like tending to the mounting piles of laundry and looking after the kids. We're actually farmers in our own right, working on farm, running our own farms, and very often 
the woman in charge of the financials for, for properties and the animals. And we're doing so much. We are the glue for rural communities because we are actively working on farms. That is the beauty about being a woman in a rural area because the ability to learn different skills and multitask can take us a lot further in the agribusiness leadership field because we know how to do different jobs and we've, we can actually change our thinking very, very quickly and we're very multi-skilled, multi-talented. So I mentioned earlier that Fiona is the president of Rural Women New Zealand. The organisation has approximately... 2,000 members spread right throughout the country. It's a community-based organisation, so we're not industry-based, so we've got women from the middle of the cities, from the high country of the South Island, lifestyle blockers. You know, the agribusiness leaders that we have in New Zealand are incredible what they're doing. As say, there's, like there's using wool in innovative ways to make products for the export market or launching organic wines utilising natural resources that come from their environment to innovate the dairy, wool and agricultural sectors. And what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions about being a woman in rural New Zealand? Well, I know we've often said with being with rural New Zealand, they say, oh, but I'm not a farmer. And we're going, actually, if you realise how many people that live rurally are not far actively farming, there's a huge range. So it's talking about all these people that might live in a lifestyle block or be... Um, just out of town or small rural towns, actually we consider rural because some of the issues that they face are the same as whether we are out on farm. What Fiona's trying to say is that for rural women New Zealand, there's no differentiation between farmers and women who don't live on farms. They support all women living rurally. It reminds me of the way the WCTU was back in the day and how it brought women together to provide support. An organisation like ours can be quite strong by saying, here we are, you know, how can we help? Come and have a coffee, we'll take the children, you go and have a break and talk to somebody else. And often a problem shared is a problem halved. Looking out the window onto beautiful green pastures, even I can't help but feel the isolation, sitting in Fiona's house with nothing around me but sheep and acres and acres of land. Fiona is at least 40 minutes to a big town and says she doesn't feel as isolated as others might. But even simple things are much harder. It gets difficult when your children go to school and they want to play every sport under the sun and the distances we have to travel. And so many other people travel a lot further than that. And it can be isolated if you move to an area and you don't know anybody and it takes a while to get in there. It can be very tough. Um, okay, so these are bigger than the average sheep. Yes, they're bigger than the average sheep. God, they've got the good life, haven't they? They have got a good life. But this, these are our pets, we don't have dogs. And, and while Rural Women New Zealand helps women stay connected, connectivity is a very real issue that adds to the isolation. You know, we think it's the biggest issue for us is actually we really like to have self-in coverage for safety issues and I think most rural New Zealand would be the same. A lot of people out here don't have decent broadband as well out in rural and that can be an issue trying to get people to come out to live rurally if there isn't decent infrastructure such as self-in coverage or connectivity and distances to things like schools and facilities like medical services can be a real issue or banks because they are closing. So these are the issues that we take into account when we're looking at why people aren't moving out into rural. And that idea of connectivity could be compared with the past. Of course, they didn't have access to the internet then either. I was fortunate enough this year in March to attend the Commission for the Status of Woman at the UN at New York and learning more about how we fit into the global picture and what we can do back here in New Zealand to help where we are on that, that global scheme. Rural Women New Zealand works from a grassroots to national and even a global level. And that's really important because many of the issues that rural women encounter here are shared with women around the world. Because it's all about the empowerment of rural women and girls and the issues that they face. The issues around the world globally seem to be the same. You know, it's talking about um, access to health services, access to education, to infrastructure, things around land and food security. But this is a bit that stuns me the most. And violence against females is a really big one as well. That seems to be a recurring theme throughout the world. Family violence occurs across all sectors of society. There's no getting around that fact. But the reason it's trickier to combat in rural areas is the inescapable isolation. It's probably much the same now as it was in the past. If we're living out on farm and uh, get into a situation where you can be isolated by uh, a dominant partner, it's very hard to get help. You may not be able to drive or get access to, to services, so the distance, the isolation can be a real issue. And probably there's a lot of underreporting because it's very hard in a community where everybody knows everybody to 
have some of this discussed because families have grown up together and, and it's a bit of a stigma. According to family violence statistics, 76% of family violence incidents aren't reported to police. But certainly you do hear cases of it and it's not just the physical violence, it's the mental and the emotional uh, violence is probably the harder one because there's no scars. And that's often the the mental um, breakdown, the emotional violence can be really, really tough because that's often when the women isolate themselves because they're just feeling as though they're not worth anything and it's very hard to, to get out of that and for us to realise there is an issue because they just shut themselves away. Which brings me back to the plight of many women in New Zealand at the time the petition was signed and the intense isolation, the problems with alcohol and the effects that it had on families. If there's a function on and you look around the room going, OK, who have we got here? Right, we'll support them, but it's who's not in the room. They're the ones going, actually, maybe they're the ones that we need to go out and visit and make sure that they're OK. Isn't the rate of depression amongst like rural men quite high as well? Rate of depression and is very high, and the, the whole issue around um, mental illness and, and being talking about wellness is really really important. Rather than illness, talk about the wellness and actually where we want them to be. And with the embovis starting to happen as well, there's some big stresses out there, and so we're making sure that these people are supported. We need to make sure that they are being looked after. The emphasis in the last few years has all about been about male farmers. We're actually turning around and going, okay, so who's caring for the carer, who's caring for the woman that is helping run the farm, is doing the books, is looking after the children and the community work, who's looking after her because she's the glue that holds everything together. And I can't help but think of the women who signed the petition, like Peter's great-grandmother, who lived on a farm and had seven children. The load that she carried must have felt insurmountable. Back to Stephanie Lash. Are you a descendant of any one of these women who signed? And did you find the signature? I have to be the only person in New Zealand who was probably not descended from anyone on the petition. But kind of, maybe. The reason she doesn't know is because her forebears lived rurally. I come from Taranaki, where there are very few signatures, and there are parts of the country where we know that there were smaller petitions that didn't get to Christchurch in time to Kate, to Kate Sheppard's house, and so they were sent in separately to Parliament, and so there was this one big petition. There were another 12 um, petitions that were um, sent in from all over the show that added about another seven or 8,000 signatures to the grand total, which is why we say here that our petition has about 25,000 and signatures and that you know but in total the number of women who signed the petition was closer to 32,000. Um, those 12 smaller petitions um, didn't survive they went transferred to national archives and so there are some parts of the country where we know that lots of signature collecting must have gone on but it looks like you know nobody from there signed. Taranaki is one of those places and Nelson is another. I like to think that my relatives were um, all in North Taranaki on one of those non-extent petitions. But my mother-in-law, who comes from South Africa, has a very unusual maiden name, and she was able to find a woman on the petition with the same name, and you know everybody in the world with this um, surname is related. And so she was absolutely chuffed, and I thought, well, kind of, how cool is it that a recent immigrant of 20 years is able to find one of her relatives on the petition? It made her really proud, and it made her access her new New Zealandness in a way that she hadn't before. I thought, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> Speaking of signatories, back to the first and Peter Aitken. As it turns out, he has at least three forebears who signed the petition, including... Mary Griffiths also signed the petition to Parliament. Mary is Mary Jane's mother. They're not listed together, and I don't know whereabouts in the petition they signed, but you'd have thought... As I stood in this rural cemetery on a frosty Christchurch morning, with my fingers feeling like they were turning to icicles. Beneath this clear blue sky that stretched for miles, I couldn't help but think, wow, this is probably not that different to how things looked back when Mary Jane and her husband lived in the area. And I wondered whether Mary Jane would have felt satisfied with how far she'd come and what she would have been setting up for her daughters as a result of signing the petition. husband died in 1908 at 66 years old and she passed away, Mary Jane Carpenter, in 1920. She had a pretty good life, didn't she? I thought 70's a bit short. For that, <laughs> for that time though. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. So she, I think, would have been reasonably satisfied with 
coming out to New Zealand as a general servant and winding up as uh, the wife of a fairly prosperous farmer. Hmm. Okay, should we go and knock on the stranger's door? Yeah. So we got back in the car and it was time to take that trip to knock on the door of the old house on Oak Farm where Peter's grandmother used to live. I was full of trepidation. But hey, what's the worst that could happen, right? Okay, good on you, thank you. Gosh, this actually looks like the state of the house looks very original, doesn't it? I mean, you can just imagine. I'm transported right to the past right now. G'day, g'day. Anyone home? got that old carpet and everything. It's been replaced a few times. Right. But just even the fittings, look at the ceiling. Do you... Today. Hello. Hello. I'm sorry to bother you. Hi. I'm Peter Aitken. It's my great-grandfather, George Frederick Carpenter, who was the original owner of this house. And I have with me Sonia Sly from Radio New Zealand. She is interested in the the family history, and in particular because George Frederick Carpenter, my great-grandfather, was married to a lady by the name of Mary Jane Carpenter, who was the first person to sign the 1893 petition to Parliament for women's votes. And we were hoping that, uh, with your permission, it would be okay just to take a couple of photos of the old house. And to just kind of have a little... We come inside and have a look at the little look walk around. Yes, yes. Oh, we can? Yes. Are you sure? Okay. Thank you very much. Yes. I was pretty excited. I'm pretty sure I actually sat there grinning like a Cheshire cat. What I didn't expect was that Peter and Don, whose family have owned the house since it was sold to them in the 1920s, that they would sit and chat about their past. My grandfather had it. The, the place, his name was, and the farm then was, I think it went into a public trust. And the story is that William was not a good farmer. Mm-hmm. His hobbies were apparently slow horses and fast women. Oh, yeah. And yeah. lost money, and, yeah. and the farm had to be sold. Farming has been in both their bloodlines, and Don has an incredibly deep connection to the house. We're still very much alive and kicking. Don and Peter shared memories. As I sat and watched, amazed, two complete strangers connected by their history and to this house that we were sitting in. You must have run sheep here at some stage. Oh, you still do. They're blinking Perindales, free range. (laughs) Perindales are very pokey sheep. Clear white face, they don't miss a trick. There's <laughs> the hole in the fence, they'll find it. <laughs> the house had been badly affected by the Christchurch earthquake, and for Don, that hit deep. We're in the, in the throes of ripping the old girl to bits. Hmm. It's emotional about it all, but oh. it's got to happen. Removing and rebuilding parts of it have been akin to chipping away at the parts of his history that can't be replaced. Oh, yeah. Oh, it is, like, still like an old kitchen. Bloody hell of a mess out there. Don took us on a tour through the house, and it's freezing in here. In the past, there would have been, like, a pot belly in there, wouldn't there? The old range. Because uh, you've got a fancy stove top there now. Mum was a progressive girl. First thing she did was to rip the old coal range out. But I was saying, each generation... Adapt to their times, you so know. It's, you it's, can't compare, really. Oh, this this is still in original condition with tongue and groove, tongue and groove remu, I would think. Yes. It is inclined to get borer. No borer. No we borer. Have, we don't have this stuff. <laughs> Great grandfather put in hardwood. Uh, okay. Kitchen. Yes. Kitchen. Yes. Kitchen. Uh, oh wow! And even like that window inside. Maid's room. Maid's room? Hang on. Would you, what, so a maid fit in here and slept in there or not? No. Oh, I would have thought so. Now, this room is tiny. It's like a little bit bigger than, I don't know, one of those sorts of water cupboards that you put your towels in, with maybe a little bit of room to spare, but not quite enough to put a bed. But I do understand that people were a bit smaller back then, so maybe... You didn't worry yeah. about the maid back then. <laughs> but, that, but that's like a cubby hole. Well, that's only a That's what they lived in. <laughs> she lives in the kitchen there and in the kitchen. She lives in the kitchen and in this like little box, basically. As we made our way up the stairs, 
I start seeing things through Mary Jane Carpenter's eyes. The bedroom she slept in, the room where her children would have slept. I picture her in long dresses that graze the wooden floor as she moves from room to room. Oh, yeah. This is cool. would have been the main sitting room, wouldn't it? Where you took people, yes, visitors. I love how it's still got that original feel. Interesting uh, stained glass too. That will be all original. As you'll see on the on the oh. photo, on your photo, it's, um, it was a window. Isn't it amazing? Because then you can sort of think back to your great grandmother and go, "This is a view she had when she used to wake mm. up." That's, that's yeah. why I get so emotional. Oh. Yeah, because you know, mm. I've got that all day, every day. Yeah. My life. They've all been here. Mm. So, looking back, what does it mean to Peter that his forebears signed the petition? It's good to know that we had forebears who were progressive, uh, determined, community-minded and, and public-spirited. It must have been quite a difficult thing for her in a male-dominated society to press for prohibition and press for the women's vote. The story from the family is is that she was not so much enthused by democratic principles, but that she wanted to have enough women voting so that they could impose temperance. We can't be absolutely sure. I mean, there must have been a certain amount of saying, well, it's only fair and reasonable that women should have an equal say in the way the country is run. You've been listening to Beyond Kate, a podcast that looks at women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. Special thanks to Natonga Sound and Vision for use of archival audio and also to To Papa and Archives New Zealand. The 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at He Tohu, the National Library of New Zealand, with the substantial and ongoing work of Archives New Zealand to build biographies of those who signed. I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. The sound engineer was Mark Chesterman, and the executive producer for this series is Tim Watkin. You also heard Adam McCauley and Duncan Smith as the men in the pub, and Ian Bull reading the prayer from the petition. Beyond Kate is available via the RNZ series and podcast page, and you can also subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbeam, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.